chapter thirteen of dutch and english on the hudson by maud wilder goodwin this librivox recording is in the public domain the negro plots as early as the eighteenth century new york had become a cosmopolitan town its population contained not only dutch and english in nearly equal numbers but also french swedes jews negroes and sailors travellers from every land the settled portion of the city according to a map of seventeen twenty nine extended as far north as beekman street on the east side and as far as trinity church on the west side a few blocks beyond the church lay old windmill lane touching king's farm which was still open country here broadway shook off all semblance to a town thoroughfare and became a dusty country road meeting the post road to boston near the lower end of the rope walk the city of new york is a pleasant well compacted place wrote madame knight who journeyed on horseback from boston over this post road and who recorded her experiences in an entertaining journal the buildings brick generally very stately and high though not altogether like ours in boston the bricks in some of the houses are of divers coolers and laid in checkers being glazed look very agreeable the inside of them are neat to admiration besides its welcoming houses set among spreading trees new york possessed public buildings of dignity and distinction there was trinity church whose tall steeple was one of the first landmarks to catch the traveller's eye as he journeyed down the river from albany the new city hall dating from bellamont's time and standing on a site at the corner of wall and broad streets given by colonel abraham de paster was also a source of pride with its substantial wings and arched colonnade in the centre it was quite imposing here the assembly council and court sat here too were offices and a library but the cellar was used as a dungeon and the attic as a common prison new markets and wharves told of the growing commerce of the city and province on every hand were evidences of luxurious living there were taverns and coffee-houses where gold flowed in abundant streams from the pockets of pirates and smugglers and in the streets crest-emblazoned family coaches while sedan chairs were borne by negro slaves along the narrow brick pathways in the centre of the town the dress of the people told the same story of prosperity the streets of the fashionable quarter around trinity church were fairly ablaze with gay costumes men of fashion wore powdered wigs and cocked hats cloth or velvet coats reaching to the knee breeches and low shoes with buckles they carried swords sometimes studded with jewels and in their gloved hands they held snuff-boxes of costly material and elaborate design the ladies who accompanied them were no less gaily dressed one is described as wearing 
a gown of purple and gold opening over a black velvet petticoat and short enough to show green silk stockings and morocco shoes embroidered in red another wore a flowered green and gold gown over a scarlet and gold petticoat edged with silver everywhere were seen strange fabrics of oriental design coming from the holds of mysterious ships which unloaded surreptitiously along the water-front the members of one class alone looked on all this prosperous life with sullen discontent the negro slaves whose toil made possible the leisure of their owners these strange uncouth africans seemed out of place in new york and from early times they had exhibited resentment and hatred toward the governing classes who in turn looked upon them with distrust this smouldering discontent of the blacks aroused no little uneasiness and led to the adoption of laws which especially in the cities were marked by a brutality quite out of keeping with the usual moderation of the colony when mrs grant wrote later of negro servitude in albany as slavery softened into a smile she spoke in the first place from a narrow observation of life in a cultivated family and in the second place from scant knowledge of the events which had preceded the kind treatment of the negroes in sixteen eighty four an ordinance was passed declaring that no negroes or indian slaves above the number of four should meet together on the lord's day or at any other time or at any place except on their master's service they were not to go armed with guns swords clubs or stones on penalty of ten lashes at the whipping-post an act provided that no slave should go about the streets after nightfall anywhere south of the collect without a lighted lantern so as the light thereof could be plainly seen a few years later governor cornberry ordered the justices of the peace in king's county to seize and apprehend all negroes who had assembled themselves in a riotous manner or had absconded from their masters in seventeen twelve during the administration of governor robert hunter a group of negroes perhaps forty in number formed a plot which justified the terror of their masters though it was so mad that it could have originated only in savage minds these blacks planned to destroy all the white people of the city then numbering over six thousand meeting in an orchard the negroes set fire to a shed and then lurked about in the shadows armed with every kind of weapon on which they could lay hands as the negroes had expected all the citizens of the neighborhood seeing the conflagration came running to the spot to fight the flames the blacks succeeded in killing nine men and wounding many more before the alarm reached the fort then of course the affair ended the slaves fled to the forests at the northern end of the island but the soldiers stationed sentries and then hunted down the negroes beating the woods to be sure that none escaped six of the negroes seeing that their doom was sealed killed themselves and the fate of the captives 
showed that they well knew what mercy to expect at the hands of the enraged whites twenty-one were put to death one being broken on the wheel and several burned at the stake while the rest were hanged after this experience of the danger attending the holding of slaves the restrictions upon the negroes grew even more irksome and the treatment they received more that of outcasts for instance a slave must be buried by daylight without pallbearers and with not more than a dozen negroes present as mourners in spite of bright spots in the picture the outlook grew constantly darker a mistrust ready to develop on slight provocation into terror perturbed the whites and every rumour was magnified till there reigned a panic as widespread as that caused by the reports of witchcraft in new england at length in seventeen forty one the storm burst one march night while a gale was sweeping the city a fire was discovered on the roof of the governor's house in the fort church bells sounded the alarm and firemen and engines hurried to the spot but it was hopeless to try to extinguish the flames which spread to the chapel and to the office of the secretary over the fort gate where the records of the colony were stored the barracks then caught fire and in a little over an hour everything in the fort was destroyed the hand grenades exploding as they caught fire and spreading destruction in every direction a month later a fire broke out at night near the blee market a bucket brigade was formed and the fire was extinguished on the same night the loft in a house on the west side of the town was found to be in flames and coals were discovered between two straw beds occupied by a negro the next day coals were found under the coach-house of john murray on broadway and on the day following a fire broke out again near the vlee market thus the townsfolk were made certain that an incendiary plot was on foot of course every one's thoughts flew to the negro slaves as the conspirators especially when a mrs earl announced that she had overheard three negroes threatening to burn the town the authorities were as much alarmed as the populace and at once leaped to the conclusion that the blame for the incendiarism of which they scarcely paused to investigate the evidence was to be divided between the roman catholics and the negroes who without reasonable grounds had so long constituted their chief terror the common council offered pardon and a reward of one hundred pounds to any conspirator who would reveal the story of the plot and the names of the criminals involved under the influence of this offer one mary burton a servant in the employ of hewson the tavern-keeper accused her master her mistress their daughter and a woman of evil reputation known as peggy carey or carey as well as a number of negroes of being implicated in the plot she said that the negroes brought stolen goods to the tavern and were protected by hewson who had planned with them the burning and plundering of the city and the liberation of the slaves on this unsupported evidence peggy carey and a number of negroes were condemned to execution and under terror of death or encouraged by the hope of pardon these prisoners made numerous confessions implicating one another 
until by the end of august twenty-four whites and one hundred and fifty-four negroes had been imprisoned four whites including hewson and peggy carey were executed fourteen negroes were burned at the stake eighteen were hanged seventy-one transported and the remainder pardoned or discharged accusations were also made that the roman catholics had stirred up the plot and persons of reputation and standing were accused of complicity the effect of the popular panic which rendered impossible the calm weighing of evidence and extinguished any sense of proportion is seen in the letters of governor george clark on june twenty seventeen forty one he writes to the lords of trade as follows the fatal fire that consumed the buildings in the fort and great part of my substance for my loss is not less than two thousand pounds did not happen by accident as i at first apprehended but was kindled by design in the execution of a horrid conspiracy to burn it and the whole town and to massacre the people as appears evidently not only by the confession of the negro who set fire to it in some part of the same gutter where the plumber was to work but also by the testimony of several witnesses how many conspirators there were we do not yet know every day produces new discoveries and i apprehend that in the town if the truth were known there are not many innocent negro men i do myself the honour to send your lordships the minutes taken at the trial of quack who burned the fort and of another negro who was tried with him and their confession at the stake with some examinations whereby your lordships will see their designs it was ridiculous to suppose that they could keep possession of the town if they had destroyed the white people yet the mischief they would have done in pursuit of their intention would nevertheless have been great whether or how far the hand of popery has been in this hellish conspiracy i cannot yet discover but there is room to suspect it by what two of the negroes have confessed these that soon after they were spoke to and had consented to be parties to it they had some checks of conscience which they said would not suffer them to burn houses and kill the white people whereupon those who drew them into the conspiracy told them there was no sin or wickedness in it and that if they would go to hewson's hewson's house they should find a man who would satisfy them but they say they would not nor did go margaret kenny carey was supposed to be a papist and it is suspected that hewson and his wife were brought over to it there was in town some time ago a man who is said to be a romish priest he used to be at hewson's but has disappeared ever since the discovery of the conspiracy and is not now to be found later in the summer the governor recorded his suspicions as follows we then thought it the plot was projected only by hewson hewson and the negroes but it is now apparent that the hand of popery is in it for a romish priest having been tried was upon full and clear evidence convicted of having a deep share in it where by whom or in what shape this plot was first projected is yet undiscovered that which at present seems most probable is that hewson an indigent fellow of a vile character casting in his thoughts how to mend his circumstances entice some negroes to rob their masters and to bring the stolen goods to him on promise of reward when they were sold but seeing that by this pilfering trade riches did not flow into him fast enough and finding the negroes fit instruments for any villainy he then fell upon the schemes of burning the fort in town and murdering the people 
as the speediest way to enrich himself and them and to gain their freedom for that was the negro's main inducement the conspirators had hopes given them that the spaniards would come hither and join with them early in the spring but if they failed of coming then the business was to be done by the conspirators without them many of them were christened by the priest absolved from all their past sins and whatever they should do in the plot many of them sworn by him others by hewson to burn and destroy and to be secret wherein they were but too punctual how weak soever the scheme may appear it was plausible and strong enough to engage and hold the negroes and that was all that the priest and hewson wanted for had the fort taken fire in the night as it was intended the town was then to have been fired in several places at once in which confusion much rich plunder might have been got and concealed and if they had it in view too to serve the enemy they could not have done it more effectually for this town being laid in ashes his majesty's forces in the west indies might have suffered much for want of provisions and perhaps been unable to proceed upon any expedition or piece of service from whence they might promise themselves great rewards i doubt the business is pretty nigh at an end for since the priest has been apprehended and some more white men named great industry has been used throughout the town to discredit the witnesses and prejudice the people against them and i am told it has had in a great measure its intended effect i am sorry for it for i do not think we are yet got near the bottom of it where i doubt the principal conspirators lie concealed with the collapse of the excitement through its own excess ends the history of the great negro plot whether it had any shadow of reality has never been determined judge horsemanden who sat as one of the justices during the trials growing out of the so-called plots compiled later a record of examinations and alleged confessions whereby he sought to justify the course of both judges and juries but the impression left by his report is that panic had paralyzed the judgment of even the most honest white men while among the negroes a still greater terror combined with a wave of hysteria led to boundless falsification and to numberless unjustified accusations End of chapter thirteen